I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, well, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just do it. We'll do it live then. We're doing it live! F*** it! <laughs> Thanks, Billow. All right, welcome everyone to a, another exciting episode of Reconsider, part of the illustrious Agora Podcast Network, where we still don't do the thinking for you. Yeah, this is going to be a bit of our break in the Reconsidering Russia series, but not really. Oh, because kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're still going to be talking about Russia. This just wasn't a planned episode. Well, sometimes, uh, one thing you should know about Russia is that it doesn't matter how you plan for Russia. <laughs> Russia's just going to do its thing, and sometimes it just pops back up. Although in this case, it wasn't Russia that came in with the surprise. It was our man at the top of the tower, Donald J. Trump, and his airstrike on Syria, uh, which has, of course, caused quite the stir. And after that stir, we're going to help you get your head around uh, what actually happened and why, what the possible and likely implications are, and... Of course, as we always do, what historical events we can look to for guidance around what's likely to happen based on, you know, the regular geopolitical forces that affect, you know, nations through time. So before we get started, remember there are there's ways to get more information on the show. For starters, you can find all of our show notes at reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. We post up all of the links, all the sources that we use to do these episodes and sometimes also there's other easter eggs to check out yeah at the very least you can see just how much research we put into this and you can also find some cool stuff from us at facebook and twitter at reconsider pod typically when we're reading the news we've got our buffer thing open and if we see something that we think you should read we're putting it on there so it's a great way to stay in touch with some of the stuff we're reading also say hi we've taken show recommendations on there before shout out to those of you guys who have sent some in hope you've enjoyed them Right, and if you get around to it on your favorite podcatcher, be it iTunes or Google Play or Overcast or what have you, we would very much appreciate a review if you get around oh, yes. to it. That helps us get our message out to even more people, pushes us up in the rankings just a touch. And finally, if you really love the show, uh, you can pitch in. We have a Patreon. We're on patreon.com slash reconsider. And we subscribe to the Dan Carlin model. We would love a buck a show to help us keep doing this. We've actually got a great starting base of patrons who've signed up, and thank you to everyone. It really means the world to us. We've had our first cabinet meetings where we take the big donors um, and we give them a big update on not just the show, but where we're going in the future. We talk about some current events. Um, Xander and I give our take on it, and that's exclusive to these guys. And 
just so you know, we're using the funds to bring on some professional marketing help. So the donations have been really, really helpful for that. And we're making a lot of progress in getting our message out to people. So to the cabinet members and to all of our Patreon supporters, thank you so much. Now, without further ado, on to the episode. So what happened? Well, the United States launched a missile strike on a Syrian government airbase. About 60 missiles were launched. They were Tomahawk missiles, and they basically destroyed an airbase. Yeah, totally wiped it. And according to the White House, they destroyed about 20% of Syria's effective air bombing capacity. So it was a big thing. But Xander, haven't we been bombing Syria for like a long time now? Why is everyone in a huff? I think, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, right? We've been supporting the Kurds and we've been supporting different rebel groups throughout the Syrian war for years and years and years. To my knowledge, this is the first missile strike. We've we've bombed the heck out of ISIS before, but this is the first time we've attacked the Syrian government, and I believe it's yes. the first time we've used missiles. So th- those there are, you go. Those are both true. It is the first time we have launched a strike on a known Syrian government target as opposed to just ISIS, which does change the game. And people seem to definitely believe that it's that it's changed the game in a significant way. We've seen a huge range of emotional responses on social media, you know, the night of and the morning after. You know, some of them were that, hey, this is what Obama should have done when Assad crossed what he called the red line. Trump's the hero. He's the defender of deterrence and justice and good. So there have been some positive responses. And then, of course, there are those who think that this is the beginning of World War III. Trump is a dangerous, loose cannon. And with this, with this provocation, he is pushing the Russians to the line, and it's going to become a general nuclear war or something equally catastrophic and crazy. Or he's just generally a warmonger, and just only a couple months into his presidency, he just couldn't keep his hands off the military hardware, and he's bringing us into an unwanted war that he said in 2013 that we should definitely avoid, and that troops are going on the ground, get ready to get drafted, but that he's not openly contemplating the whole World War Three thing. And then there's this final category of folks that thinks that this is just a distraction, the, the launch was a distraction, in order to basically build Trump's uh, political base. So think that he, uh, that Trump or someone in his office is a clever, calculating, scheming guy, and he will actually benefit from, from this move politically. But first, what happened? Well, I guess we got to start before the strike, because it was in response to something. Right. It was a chemical attack, or at least a seeming attack in, I'm going to butcher this name, Khan Sheikhoun which is in northwest-ish Syria. It's a rebel hotspot, and it left at least 48 dead and injured on Tuesday, April 4th. The chemical was sarin gas, which, if you've seen the videos or read anything about sarin, it is a really, really gruesome way to die. And U.S. government counts claim that the chemical was dispersed by air-dropped bombs, which realistically only the Syrian government could have done were it from these air-dropped bombs. Right. And it's, it's, it really is easy, I think, when you're discussing events like this and talking about the grand geopolitical implications to sort of forget about the human suffering. But really, I mean, if you've seen any of these images or these videos, it's really just a terrible, terrible, it's a tragedy, right? So it's, it's worth keeping that in mind. 
in terms of who launched the attack, right? As Eric mentioned, the, the current assumption is that it was the Assad regime. The chemical weapons were dropped from the Syrian Air Force planes. And it was done in this hot spot of rebel activity. I, I, I believe the uh, Syrian government had just recently taken control of this area and they were trying to cement their, well, cement their control over the area and convince civilians and citizens really not to side with any of the rebels by terrorizing them. Now, there are, however, some reasonable objections that it might not have been Assad at all. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the logic behind these as well. But it's, a, but it's entirely possible that Syrian warplanes war did attack the area, but in fact they struck a location where chemical weapons might have been pro being produced. It is the case that chemical weapons have been used by multiple entities in this war, so they might have either intentionally or mistakenly hit in a sarin gas factory and just released a bunch of the gas from it. But the United States' assumption currently is that it was Assad. Yeah, and I think, Eric, for my part, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense that it is Assad. But the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, if if one is actually trying to analyze the situation, there hasn't been a lot of on-the-ground investigation, right? So that's oh, why— Oh, right, very little. Yeah, that's why we'll talk about the, the other perspective. Yes, and certainly not within the first 68 hours while the area was still pretty toxic. And that's how many hours it took for Donald Trump to press the button. So just before he did— uh, he was caught in a hot interview and said something should be done. The West, of course, reacted with deep condemnation for what's you know, pretty obviously a war crime against the civilian population, or if it was a factory, a you know, a, an intent to war crime. And there was really, really intense deliberation within the White House for two and a half days. The United Nations, of course, was doing its thing where it was thinking about a strongly worded letter that it was going to write. But then Trump decided to take action. Yeah, so Trump ordered the launch of these Tomahawk missiles, just pounded the airbase. James Mattis and the military helped plan the attack. Western allies claimed that they were informed beforehand, and there have been conflicting reports about whether or not Moscow was, and Moscow is Bashar al-Assad's patron and military supporter, whether or not Moscow was informed before the strike. I've, I've read both things at this point. Yeah, and the, the airbase was pretty much pounded into dust, uh, except critically, the runway itself, in Trump's words, wasn't worth hitting because it's cheap to fix. But um, fueling stations, ammo depots, planes themselves, hangars and such, all taken out. So other than a strip of concrete, there's really nothing left. A few dozen military personnel were killed. And immediately afterward, despite the massive number of missiles, Syria decided to land planes onto that tarmac and then fly off from them and, and photograph it in order to show that they can still use it. And then they continued flying missions against rebel-held areas, including, with conventional weapons, the site of the chemical attack. So it seems kind of ineffective, right? Well, we'll come back to that in the context of a potential political move. But first, mm. how did world leaders react to this? Well, obviously, Assad called it barbaric and reprehensible, uh, terrible aggression and claims that he has no idea where the attack came from. I think North Korea or North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un said something similar, that this is just something that the, U the imperialistic U.S. has done and it's just awful and uh, you take statements from people like this with more than a grain of salt, right? Right. Russia and Iran condemned it, not shocking, claiming that the Syrian government really had nothing to do with the chemical attack. 
Yeah, and then Russia, in response, cut off the not-quite-cooperation hotline that they used with the U.S. This hotline was used to make sure that planes basically didn't run into each other in the air while they were bombing different targets in Syria. It's a very weird sentence to say if you think about it, but that's how complex the thing on the ground is. You've got you know, these two air forces supporting different sides, using bombing, but not at war with each other. So they had this hotline that said, like, hey, by the way, we're going to go bomb this target. The other side would go, okay, it's clear. But that has now been shut down. Kind of, right? I mean... Yeah, sure. Russia came out after and said it was it was cutting off this, quote, deconfliction hotline, which is just, like, one of the most jargony things you can call it, right? That Washington Moscow had established, basically to prevent, like you said, some accidental conflict between either Syrian fighter planes, Russian planes, and U.S. forces in the area. Now, when I read about this, it didn't really make sense to me, because why would Russia want to increase the chance of getting into a conflict with the U.S.? One that it would, frankly, definitely lose. I mean, the U.S. is just immensely more powerful than Russia, militarily and economically. Now, there are reports perhaps unsurprisingly, that high-level talks are in fact still going on, because of course they are. Cutting off the hotline is good posturing, though, for Russia's domestic audience, and Putin gets to say, oh, we're strong, and look what we're doing in retaliation for what the terrible United States has done. Yeah, man, what a retaliation. Unplug the phone. I did that (laughs) once with someone I was mad with. (laughs) Putin Definitely won that argument. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. (laughs) So... Oh, maybe the strangest thing I read about uh, this this deconfliction hotline cutoff was an LA Times report that said that some of these talks between the U.S. and Moscow occur over an insecure phone line and a Google email account, and this was according to quote an anonymous sort. Now I'm all, I'm not corroborating this. It's just weird enough that I thought I'd bring up while we were talking about it. Yeah, well, the other interesting question is whether or not it's true. Why would the LA Times anonymous source? bother bringing something like that up and report it. Now, maybe it's a nod to whistleblower types telling them, hey, here's something you can tap. You can see what the Russians and Americans are actually up to. But also, once an anonymous source told me that the government is run by lizard people, um, and I decided not to publish that. And I, I then did some research. I found out that like 4% of people in the US and, and non-zero percentages of people elsewhere believe it. So we've got that link in the show notes, if you want to check it out, it's it's there. Reconsidering it's reptilians. That's our next show. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and then, okay, so Iran decided that it was going to weigh in on this because it had to. It said that it, quote, will not be quiet in response to the attack. But, um, you know, and so some people said, oh, see, Iran's going to attack the United States now. It seems, again, unlikely that Iran is going to start a, is is going to give Trump an excuse to bomb it. And what being, you know, not being quiet is could actually mean a whole lot of things. Yeah, it could also mean absolutely nothing, right? I mean, the thing to remember about comments like this is that for leaders, they're free, no political costs, right? Uh, But it can make them look strong to whatever constituency they're, they're appealing to without actually committing their country or military to actually do anything. Well, it's like the UN's strongly worded letter of commendation, except it's a whole lot less bureaucracy in voting to get to it. You just have to say it. Exactly. Now, what about U.S. allies? Well, that's the interesting question. I mean, if think about it right now. If you're if you're listening and you haven't read the news yet, how do you think that U.S. allies are going to respond to this? Take about ten seconds to think about it. Okay, you only get three seconds. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there we go. Okay, time's up. Reveal your answer. 
U.S. allies have seemed to almost universally, I haven't read of any that, that have gone against this grain, but have almost universally approved of the attack. General statements are that it was a precise, well-measured retaliation, a clear message that such war crimes are unacceptable, and a clear deterrent for others who in the future might consider doing such a thing. Okay, so our friends are happy. I mean, UK, France, Germany, Israel, Australia, Canada, they said good things. And you might think, like, are they in a position where they're obligated to say good things, much like, you know, where Iran, Syria, and Russia are kind of in a position where they're obligated to say bad things about it. And I think from a political perspective, the answer is no. They could have come out and said, this is a bad idea. I mean, they've gotten in the habit since Iraq of criticizing U.S. policy that they don't like pretty openly. They don't feel like they have to kowtow to everything the United States does. And so from a political perspective, it does seem to suggest that the leadership and government of these countries actually do approve of it. They, they do seem to believe that Assad was behind the attacks, and they do seem to believe that the U.S. strike was the right way of dealing with it, you know, even though it didn't pass a kind of U.N. collaborative process, you know, which is really interesting, although not, again, too surprising, given that this is a war crime. This did seem to be a very targeted thing, limited. And also, you know, the West has gotten in the habit of using limited force in somewhat unilateral ways to be able to, you know, try to make small shifts in the way that people think when they're thinking about doing very heinous stuff. So, you know, possibly not shocking. The next question is how the United States is responding outside of the White House. Right. So first, there are people in other branches of the government that aren't the executive, right? So Congress, the Senate, and basically lawmakers are reacting as you would expect they would. Republicans are cheering it. Democrats are booing it. Nobody is really saying anything interesting. Right, which is also somewhat telling in other policy in the past. In particular, when Obama would do certain stuff, Democrats who tend to be less in favor of military force when they can avoid it, they would dissent. And sometimes Republicans would jump on board and say, hey, this is great. Right. So even in the last eight years of heavy political polarization, you would have reactions that were across party lines for certain kinds of military action or lack of military action. You might have, you know, Republicans saying, you know, this is good that we didn't do anything and Democrats against it. This seems to be much more party line. Again, somewhat limited data here so far. Not everyone's had an opportunity to respond or taken one, uh, but it looks like it's lining up along party lines pretty closely. Which, which is actually probably much more surprising than you might otherwise think, given how things have been going the past eight years. Yeah, and I think that there's something worth observing here from a reconsidered perspective, which is everyone, including me, has a tendency to overreact when new information or events come out of nowhere and end up caring a lot less about them in about a month or two, right? Now, recognizing this, when something new and seemingly startling occurs, it's often worth in my opinion, overcompensating in the other direction, tone down emotions and try to put the event in the context of other things that were big deals, you know, at the time that we no longer care about, or at least that we haven't thought much of recently. If we look to the media, if we look at the, like the big five news outlets, so it's like the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and someone, their opinion pieces were actually all range from somewhat positive to very positive. The worst I saw was that Trump was thinking with his heart when he launched the strike, which he made indications that he was. He reacted. He saw the, the images 
and videos, and, and he had a very visceral reaction, and it caused him to consider um, his position on Syria. But there was not a lot of dissenting opinion, and and the day after, or two days after, I didn't actually see any. I didn't even see like a, an op-ed piece, you know, a guest op-ed piece that dissented against it, which is weird. It's really weird. Only you know, generally to not do that ever, and also for a media establishment which has gotten a lot of traction from and, and possibly just simply fallen into the habit of criticizing the administration. Whether that is because this was just a really good idea or because there was some other motivation going on, the media has been, you know, the mainstream media has been very positive about it. Now, of course, if you go to the more part, more obviously partisan media, you know, the stuff that kind of advertises itself as partisan, they've got their own takes on it. You know, Fox News is pro, Huffington Post is against, etc. But yeah, that was something worth noting. So now we've talked about the reaction some. If we pivot back to the basics, why why would Assad do something like this, right? From a strategy perspective, it kind of just seems like a bad idea. Now, there are different interpretations, like Eric mentioned, that perhaps this, this wasn't Assad, but let's just assume that it was and think, what what could have been going through his head if he did actually commit this attack, right? Well... He got away with it last time. The The last attack at Ghouta was something that Obama had, you know, that was Obama's red line, and the U.S. really didn't do anything about it. And maybe Assad thinks that it worked well enough to terrorize a population that was supporting the rebels, and he did it with relative impunity, um, so he can do it again. And all, all he might have to face is the Russians saying, here, give it, you know, we're taking your weapons away, even though we're not really. Yeah, and Assad has had a long history of using torture and such to intimidate people. It was, in fact, his torture of a kid who was caught making anti-Assad graffiti that actually kicked off the first rebellion in Homs six years ago. Right, so this is a guy who uses gruesome force in order to try to keep a population in line. So it may have crossed his mind, again, as a, as a good idea for this area. And I don't know enough about the area and the particular kind of local politics there to be able to say whether you know, there was some sort of reason that, that this place was the one that really needed the gas, in his mind. You know, and I think the it's possible the other reason he thought he'd get away with it was, you know, he looked back on the Obama administration and said, look, they didn't do anything. Trump is much more isolationist in his rhetoric his foreign policy so far has been somewhat hands-off, except with respect to ISIS. And also, there's this pretty powerful Trump-Putin bromance of the bad hombres story, right? So a lot of United States opposition is centered around this idea that Trump is in bed with Putin. Um, obviously, the Russia investigations are are fueling that idea. And so Assad very may very well have believed that you know, the Trump administration wouldn't do something to really tick off the Russians, that they were close enough and interested enough in a good relationship that Assad would really only have to face Putin instead of also having to face Trump. Right. Now, that said, Secretary of State Tillerson came out a couple of days before the chemical attack and said or suggested that uh, Assad could stay in power at that point. And Marco Rubio is arguing that, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that this chemical attack occurred days after Tillerson said something like this. But statements like this need to be seen as political and not explanatory in nature. I mean, when whenever you have a lawmaker grandstanding, you just got to take it with a couple of teaspoons of 
salt, right? We just keep adding salt to this. I mean, it's going to be buckets of salt soon. <laughs> that sounds uh, like a, at least you can make beef jerky with it. Yeah, there um, you go. Yeah. Now, there are some arguments against the proposition that it was Assad, right? The first is he only, quote, got away with the first use of chemical weapons in Ghouta in the sense that he wasn't directly attacked by the U.S., but he was forced to cede a number, supposedly all, but this is very doubtful at this point, uh, a large number of his chemical weapons in a deal overseen by the Russians. So he, he lost some of his weapons. The Ghouta attack was from a couple of years ago was just really really awful something like 1500 people were killed which is a lot more than the 86 who were killed in Kanshikun but still the number of people that have been killed with chemical weapons in the Syrian civil war is a tiny portion of the casualties that Assad has been inflicting with conventional weapons yeah, a total of 100,000 civilians have died. It's not at all clear how many of them have died from mass bombing, but who boy, it's a lot. I mean, I'm sure you guys remember during the presidential race, talking about Aleppo was a big thing because one of the candidates didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, and the reason we were talking about Aleppo is that it's really been bombed into nothing. And a lot of people managed to get away before you know their neighborhood was totally wiped out, but a lot didn't. And that's, you know, in addition to the 100,000 people dead, you know, 7 million are displaced, which is just un... I mean, think of all of Manhattan displaced, um, oh. is how big a, a population it is. So the, the civilian toll that Assad has been willing to, you know, to take in order to execute this war has been just unimaginably high. And so, you know, what's interesting about looking at the chemical attack is that it seems possibly unnecessary, right? He's willing to use so much force already. He's willing to kill so many people. He's willing to level cities in order to degrade the rebels' capacity to make war. It seems a little bizarre to suspect that a small chemical attack is going to be the thing that is you know, really going to change their behavior. But to be fair, we've never been in a war zone. We've never been, you know, had they been... Had they been sort of immunized to the fear of bombs because they're dropping all the time, would the chemical attack have been fundamentally different to the psychology or did he calculate that way? That's something we can only speculate on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. It just seems odd to me, and that doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but it seems odd that Assad knew that using chemical weapons would bring international condemnation back upon him. There's a gamble because he would have to guess what form this international condemnation would take. It could turn public opinion sufficiently to force countries that, you know, have been happy to kind of sit on the sidelines to become more involved in a war that Assad has really been winning lately. I mean, why risk the entire momentum of his war to terrorize one town? It, it, it seems to not make a ton of sense, but, you know, we don't have all the answers right now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And, and hopefully someday we will. But at this point, the world is really reacting as if as if Assad did do this. So Trump made his call. And so one of the questions we got about this call is whether Trump required congressional authorization. One of the reasons we have this question is because Trump tweeted some time ago about Obama should get congressional authorization in order to do his thing. And so people are like, ah, see? And so people did ask us, hey, did he, did he need it? And the answer is actually really clearly no in this case. There's this thing called the War Powers Act, and it lets the president do snap strikes like this just for this reason. If he was going to do more, he would ostensibly require congressional authorization and a declaration of war within, I think, 60 days. But it's also worth noting that we've had Marines and special forces in Syria for years without this authorization. Obama started it. Trump's continued it. And so it's, it's you know, would it be shocking if more special forces were deployed to some part of Syria without a congressional authorization, it wouldn't be shocking. That precedent seems to be degrading. Right. And that's what Trump has the ability to do. But let's talk about what he might actually do, right? We've had no indication that Trump, Mattis have really any intention of escalating the situation. I think Tillerson gave some veiled comment in a press conference about steps being taken, quote unquote, to remove Assad from power, but I'm going to come back to a recurring theme of this episode, which is political statements are not commitments, and actions can vary very much from what leaders actually say. So we have no indication yet that the Trump administration has any desire whatsoever to escalate the situation past this one limited strike. Yeah, and McMaster, who's his national security advisor, said that they'd pursue a dual policy of defeating ISIS and getting rid of Assad. He said that at time of recording this morning, so today's the 10th of April. And it's worth noting that, you know, you might hear this and go, ah, ah, we're going to war. But just remember that for years, under the Obama administration, removing Assad was part of their official policy, and it was largely just a strategy on paper. And so this could be a return to more of the same with Obama, or it could mean no change at all. Yeah, I read that article that you sent me to about McMaster's comments. And in addition to saying that the U.S. would continue to pursue this dual strategy, he also said that the U.S. will also prioritize beating ISIS over removing Assad. So, I mean, it kind of sounds like a continuation of the pre-existing policy that we had under Obama. Yeah. Yeah. So we're probably not going to get boots on the ground Honestly, it seems very, very unlikely. Uh, the United States has no appetite for it. I think Mattis will understandably be able to, if someone in the administration wants to do it, which, by the way, most don't because they're mostly isolationists. But if someone decides they want to do it, Mattis is likely able to make the case that it's, you know, hey, guys, this could be like Iraq. Like, this is not going to end well if we put a bunch of troops on the ground and remove this guy and then make it our responsibility to clean it up. There's really no way that Trump could credibly pursue a boots-on-the-ground-style war in Syria, and we don't want to anyway, so it's probably not going to happen. Even if there were an increase in the number of troops that were in Syria, let's come back to this World War III proposition that I've seen 
circulating in my social media echo chamber. The argument, as I've understood it, has gone something like this. Russia is powerful, and it's intervening in Syria, and any steps that the U.S. makes in the area risks confrontation that will escalate into a general strategic conflict between the two countries. Ooh, we said strategic. That's a big deal. Strategery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. I left that wrong. (laughs) There we go. Now, in my opinion, this argument doesn't really make sense for a few reasons. One, Russia is not a powerful country. It's intervening in the Middle East out of a position of weakness rather than strength. Fighting in Syria lets Putin basically do two things. He gets to go back home and flout, quote, Russian strength and give, probably more importantly, Russia some bargaining chips in the conflict that it cares a lot more about, which is Ukraine. So he gets to beat his chest at home and he gets to work with the U.S. a little bit more in negotiations. You know, as a quick aside, I actually looked at our stats recently and we have a non-zero number of Russian listeners and I would love to hear some Russian takes on this and all the other stuff we've been talking about with respect to Russia, because generally our take on it is that, you know, we're hard numbers guys. So we look at the hard numbers of Russia's military capability. We kind of go, eh, (laughs) not that impressive, but you know, maybe it's opposition guys listening to us. Maybe it's, you know, pro United Russia guys, but if you've got opinions, feel free to text us. The next question is regardless of Russia's strength, would they retaliate? Now, the key question is against what, right? So for the Syrian strike specifically, there's really nothing to retaliate against, right? They've been supporting the Syrian regime, but guess what? When, you know, someone in a regime we support gets attacked, we don't then just go declare a war on the country and start a big conflagration. And it would be even less likely for us to do that if that country had an economy 16 times ours. And then what if we hit a... Russian something by mistake. What could Russia do? Well, it could attack the United States directly. And that would be a very odd move because it would trigger NATO Article 5 and more or less force Russia into a war with all of NATO. And that's kind of the point. The point is that if Russia attacks a NATO member, all of NATO has to now go to war against Russia. It's just a bad idea and seems very, very unlikely. So their only other option besides attacking the United States directly is attacking Syrian rebels which they're doing already. And so as far as a Russian retaliation, it's really not clear what that... I'm having trouble imagining what that would even be. Right. And, you know, when you think about military possibilities between countries, I think it's important to think about capabilities, right? Because you could talk about what countries want to be able to do, but you can't magically make ICBMs and aircraft carriers appear out of nowhere, right? And Russia just fundamentally does not have the military capabilities to seriously challenge the U.S. in any sort of real conflict. I mean, just to start, it has one outdated aircraft carrier that runs on diesel. Diesel, guys. So just for comparison, all 12 of the United States aircraft carriers, which are much bigger and have much better technology, also happen to run on nuclear power plants that are on board. And it has two just in case one goes down, right? So these guys can run for years on sea without hooking up. And so Russia has, in comparison, kind of like a Mad Max slash Waterworld Exxon Valdez thing roaming around with a few planes, it's not really going to be able to do much in a protracted fight. Yeah, exactly. And while military capabilities is 
one thing that you need to look at in any potential conflict between two countries. The other is how countries will supply their war. And Russia also lacks the military infrastructure to supply any sort of concerted, especially long-distance effort against the United States. I mean, just talking about the uh, this, this one aircraft carrier, I mean, in, in today's world, to project power, you really need several aircraft carrier fleets. It's just a requirement because otherwise you don't have air superiority. And if you can't keep those aircraft carrier groups going, I, you're just going to lose air superior, superiority and then you're going to get your Navy bombed, right? The, the U.S. would crush any real Russian effort to actually confront the U.S. And the thing is, Russia knows this. Maybe they could inflict a lot of casualties, but it would play pretty bad at home. Yeah, and play actually probably politically pretty well in the United States. If we were directly attacked by Russia and Madison Trump decided to use the full might of the United States military to quickly end the fight and take the teeth out of Russia, it would probably go pretty well politically. That's something that the United States would probably have an appetite of war for. So... Russia has other options, of course. One thing they could do is they could attack allies in Europe, which, again, if any of them are NATO, it triggers Article 5, and they're at war with the United States. So their other option is Ukraine um, or Finland. But given the supply difficulties that it already has confronting Ukraine, which is a totally broken and disorganized military, any attack on someone like Finland would be magnified several fold. Uh, Finland has a very competent, very modern military. And it would still risk uniting all the West against that in a pretty concerted effort. Yeah, and just for the sake of gaming this out a little bit further, because I, I have heard so much about fear of a Russia-US war. What else could Russia do? Well, a general nuclear strike. I mean, theoretically, they still have those capabilities. I would argue this isn't a real option either, because it would be 100% certain suicide for Russia, which really isn't in their interest. And the U.S. nuclear fleet is, again, far superior to the Russians. As I understand it, we may even have some anti-missile technology that would seriously limit the impact of any first strike that the Russians would make. Like, we're deploying this uh, anti-missile capability right now to South Korea, theoretically, to hit any North Korean missile that launches, but China's very angry about it because it could hit some of theirs too. I take this with a grain of salt because the U.S. has been saying that it's had this capability since the Reagan administration. But the, the point is, any nuclear strike ends very, very, very badly for Russia. And that brings the situation back to one limited primarily to conventional arms. Now, I'm not 100% certain about all of this, but that's how I personally read the situation. I think it makes a lot of sense for Russia to beat its chest at the U.S. It gains a lot from that at home, but not to actually do anything. So it seems likely just from looking at the hard facts of the ground that Russia would lose if it started a confrontation with the United States or even if it had a cautious belly of one of its you know, soldiers being killed by mistake – um, if it decided to retaliate, it would still have a lot of trouble. And so it, it probably does not want a direct military conflict with the United States. And it is probably the case that Mattis understands this. And therefore, the administration felt that their strike into Syria didn't seriously increase the risk of an escalation conflict between Russia and the United States. So long story short, I think a deeper analysis suggests that the risk of a war with the United States and Russia is very, very low. Now, if we pivot back to Syria, 
because we kind of went on a tangent about the U.S. Russia, which ultimately, I mean, the conflict in Syria is about bigger power, so it's worthwhile. But what what will Assad do now? It's not clear. He needs to make a calculation, and he needs to ask himself if the U.S. is more likely to escalate on its own, escalate only if Assad uses chemical weapons more, or you know whether we'll leave him alone, even if he does use more chemical weapons. Yeah, and whatever his whatever his calculations, we know that the Syrian military is limited in capability. And the reason we know that is because a bunch of ragtag rebels continue to cling on in a lot of parts in Syria, despite years of concerted effort and despite Russian help. And so Assad isn't failing to escalate his war against the rebels because he's feeling like a nice guy and suddenly he's going to not feel like a nice guy. He's not a nice guy and he's really doing his best. He's not enjoying the war. He doesn't want to drag it out. Therefore, besides a few particularly mean things he could do just to kill a bunch of civilians, there's not a whole lot that Assad has on the table. He's not holding anything back right now. So he's not going to be able to magically pull out something that he can deploy to make U.S.-backed rebels' lives in Syria much harder. Um, And so Assad just doesn't have a lot of options. The next question, one that comes to one's mind, is what what does Trump get from this limited missile strike? One argument I've heard is Trump is irrational. This move doesn't make any sense. It'll all backfire on him. And he's a big idiot because he just doesn't know what he's doing. And he's still orange. Still orange. Now, unsurprisingly, this narrative tends to be coming from folks sitting more on the left. Although, as Eric mentioned earlier, the alt-right also isn't really responding to this attack too happily. Now, I, again, personally, and I feel like I'm, I'm diving into a lot of opinions on this show, but I disagree with this narrative that Trump is irrational. And here's why. A limited strike on Assad is a political win for Trump with little costs. He gets to beat his chest in public and say he's a strong president, unlike Obama. Our allies are already approving of the move. 60 missiles really doesn't matter from the perspective of U.S. military budget. There are no additional troops that were committed. No American blood was shed. No one at home is going to get angry or worried about their sons or daughters or husbands or wives getting put in harm's way for no reason. Yeah, and I've seen some noise about the price of the missiles. You know, uh, they cost like a million and a half dollars each, so it's $90 million that could have been spent on X. And therefore, Trump is... And, and therefore, this was bad for Trump somehow. I think politically, even the people making that argument probably know that it is fairly weak. $90 million is really a drop in the bucket for the U.S. military budget. Uh, and, and this seems to be, you know, a form of political theater. I think that the cost of the strike is something that is not likely to hurt Trump politically going forward. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. Mil- uh, the U.S. defense budget every year is hundreds of billions of dollars every year. So every year, the U.S. is buying arms with this money. 60 to $90 million really is nothing. Now, this is such a limited strike that it, it doesn't even really change the situation on the ground in Syria. I mean, there's one air base that seemed to be degraded enough that Assad had to wait a couple of days before flying planes back off the runways. But what this means is that Russia can't really come to the U.S. and say, you know, WTF, you guys are really significantly deteriorating Syria's military capacities, and we're kind of standing behind them. 
because the U.S. hasn't actually significantly deteriorated any of Syria's military capabilities. There's one airbase, and Syria went back to bombing the same city a few days later uh, with conventional weapons. So from a political perspective, this is probably going to shake out to be a pretty big win for Trump. Now he's seen as strong, and it cost him both politically and militarily next to nothing. Now, if a major troop commitment happens in the nearby future, this interpretation will need to be revisited and potentially retracted. I think the other two questions about how Trump comes out of this politically are, one, how are U.S. allies going to feel about it besides just generally approving of the strike? This may or may not get him a whole lot of points on the board, but what it does do is it shows that Trump is willing to consider using United States power for humanitarian-style leadership in the globe, which there was a lot of question about whether he was, right? There was a lot of question about whether the United States was still, still sort of the leader of the free world. People have been talking about Merkel being the leader of the free world. So Trump has at least made a bold move that suggests, hey, there are cases in which the United States is going to act. We won't set aside. And we'll think about it, and it will be what appears to be a, a smart, precise, measured response. Not a loose cannon sort of deal, not an overreaction, and not just a lot of noise. And so it's likely that he's won some points with U.S. allies um, and somewhat increased the trust that they had, wherever it happened to be before that, in the United States' ability to be a reliable leader and partner on the global stage. The other thing to think about is... The strike has caused the media and even Republican lawmakers to ask, okay, what's the bigger strategy here? And immediately Trump didn't have a great answer, but they still have time to figure out what that strategy is going to be. They've already stated their goals, right? ISIS first, Assad second. What's their strategy going to be to get into that? I think at worst, he's going to end up with an Obama-level strategy, which is kind of murky and, and slow. And at best, this may force the administration to sit down and really think about it. Um, and they may come out with something good. So I think even from those two perspectives, it's unlikely that Trump's going to be burned for the move. So the other and most important thing, you know, we've, we've been making a lot of sort of analytical judgments from a foreign policy perspective, which we, we tend to allow ourselves to do a little more on the foreign policy field because we've studied it for so long. And we think a lot of these forces are, are pretty clear. One of the reasons we can do this is that we have the teacher of history. The United States has used air power a lot um, over the past 70 years in order to affect political change um, or achieve some sort of limited objective. So we can learn a little bit about this. Recently, it's been mostly against terror groups, right? Obama's drone war in Afghanistan and Pakistan as well as U.S. bombing in Iraq and Syria, obviously, and in other places, we do limited strikes, like in Somalia. What's interesting is that some of these, for example, in Pakistan and in Syria, have been done without the permission of the sovereign. So in Afghanistan, you know, the leadership there is like, yes, yes, bomb Taliban. In Pakistan, they want nothing to do with it, but we're doing it anyway. And we're doing it anyway because they can't do anything about it. What's interesting is recently... We haven't bombed a whole lot against a sovereign that we're not fully committed against. So, of course, when we invaded Iraq, we were fully committed to destroying the sovereign's power. So we used air and ground troops. The interesting question will be, when has the United States attacked sovereign militaries recently in a limited way? If we start from sort of the end of the Cold War, we can look at the 1998 Libyan airstrike 
This was in response to a terror attack in Germany. It was generally considered a success. It was a message to Muammar Gaddafi, and Gaddafi's behavior actually significantly changed, including an airstrike being used as a threat to get him to to de-escalate his weapons of mass destruction program. In the 1990s, the United States used bombing to stop the genocide of Kosovars. This is a much larger air campaign and was somewhat questionably effective. In 1998, there was Operation Infinite Reach in Afghanistan in response to the bombing of the USS Cole. So this is before 9-11. The United States used a limited operation with cruise missiles to hit Al-Qaeda bases in order to sort of have a retaliation against them and let them know that this was unacceptable. Obviously, this attack failed in its long-term political objective. Now, I want to come back to the example of the 03 of invasion of Iraq, because I think they are somewhat analogous in the sense that there was back then also a claim of weapons of mass destruction that the U.S. used as uh, as justification to attack the sovereign. That's fair. Now, I think this brings up Yet another point that's important to keep in mind, which is just because the U.S. government or the CIA says something doesn't make it true. Most people know that the claims of yellow cake, which is the fissile material supposedly found in Iraq prior to the invasion, was not real. Fewer people currently seem willing to question the U.S. government's claim that the chemical weapons were launched by the Assad regime rather than being produced by some rebel group, despite reports over the last several years that some chemical weapons have been used by different entities in the conflict. Now, generally, chlorine gas has been used more than other chemicals, and this attack was done with sarin, and chlorine is easier to make and acquire. So maybe that's a point you draw. But the point is, this is just a reconsider skeptical moment. When evaluating the claims of the U.S. government or any government, really, Don't forget that in the thick of things, the U.S. intelligence agencies have made plenty of big screw-ups in the past. Yeah, and Iraq, of course, might be the thing that everyone's looking to with worry, where we say, look, someone has chemical weapons, we find this unacceptable, we're going to use military power to stop them. Is this going to escalate in another Iraq? And I think that's a legitimate thing to consider. We've talked about it before, we think it's not. And there's even a good question as to whether the United States could have achieved its original stated purpose, which is a more comprehensive chemical weapons cleanup and inspection program of Iraq without landing troops on the ground. The last recent use of air power against a sovereign that I can think of was Libya in 2011. And the scope of this intervention grew. It was originally to protect the citizens of Benghazi, who were in open revolt against Gaddafi from being just totally wiped out by tanks. And then the scope crept as the people in Benghazi counterattacked, and we decided to use air power to help them get to Tripoli, where they beat Gaddafi to death, toppled the government, and a long-standing low-grade civil war took over. And so to some extent, that use of air power was effective, but as we're learning in many of our adventures in the Middle East, toppling a dictator and then hoping everything is going to work out okay doesn't always work. So... What are the bigger implications of this particular missile strike? From an international relations perspective, there is a case to be made that this is a win for deterrence, just like the 1988 Libyan bombing. Um, It's a somewhat similar situation. It's a tin pot dictator that thinks they can get away with X, and the U.S. makes clear that they cannot get away with X without consequences. And so more than degrading the 
capability of Syria. This is a message that the United States is willing to use overwhelming force in response to the use of, you know, in one case, terrorism, in this case, chemical weapons against the civilian population. It remains to be seen whether it worked, but there is a case that both Assad and other people considering using such weapons are on notice, which would be a good thing. So this is one event in whatever pattern is going to emerge as the Trump doctrine, which we still don't really know, right? Trump could become a limited response deterrence guy with clearly demarcated no-go lines. He could be, as many think, this crazy madman who may or may not respond with overkill to what you do if he stirs up too much. Now, I think something that's worth keeping keeping in mind when considering Trump's foreign policy approach so far is that Trump's been pretty hands-off with foreign policy. He talks and blusters and tweets, and then everyone gets really angry. And he's basically been letting James Mattis and Tillerson, but mainly Mattis, set most foreign policy. I think this this might be a reasonable reconsider moment for people who do not like Trump, which is if one of your criticisms of the guy is that he doesn't know anything about the world, especially outside of the U.S., then isn't delegating responsibility to someone who does know more about the world a wise leadership move? I think another important reconsider moment as we're trying to figure out what's going to happen with the rest of the Trump administration, because it's still it's still pretty unclear to most people, myself included, is whether our other perceptions of Trump with respect to foreign policy are correct. So, of course, given the Russia investigations, there's a lot of, and I think not illegitimate, worry that Trump is anywhere from a little too friendly with Russia to compromised by Russia to a total puppet of Russia. This strike, what's interesting about this is that the risk that everyone's worried about is that this escalates into a full-on conventional or nuclear war with Russia, which would be a pretty strong case and, and the first real piece of evidence we have about Trump's relationship with Russia, this would be a pretty strong case against that notion that Trump is a a lackey of Putin. And so if you've been thinking strongly that Trump is a lackey of Putin, I think this is a moment for you to sit back and say, hmm, what does Trump's behavior in this particular case tell me about that current hypothesis that I have? Is it something that, you know, challenges that hypothesis? And what kind of behavior should I be looking to in the future with Trump that would, if it were true, challenge that hypothesis? And if it were true, reinforce that hypothesis? So I, th- I just think this is a really good moment where we start to ask ourselves whether our the notions that we formed about Trump in the foreign policy sphere are as accurate as we've let ourselves believe that they are. Right. And this particular event and what comes from it is obviously worth keeping an eye on. And I think perhaps this will be a good opportunity, maybe two months from now, look back at your initial reaction and see whether it was warranted with the facts on the ground at the time, uh, based on what happens between now and then, or if the emotional fervor of the environment in which you find yourself led to an overreaction one way or another. Yeah, and, and we've been talking a lot about the people that oppose Trump, in part because we're mostly exposed to that. You know, we live in L.A. and Cambridge. But it is worth looking at from the other side. You know, I think that obviously there's a there's an alt-right faction, which we argue in a blog post on Reconsider is probably very, very small. That's very, very against it. 
they expected Trump to act a certain way, very isolationist, and this seems to oppose that. But then there's the general conservatives or moderates. Um, you know, if if there's a lot of sort of like, you know, patriotic fervor coming out of this or something else like that, what's the, you know, what's the thing that you're expecting to happen next? What is like the good that you're hoping that comes from this? And take stock of that prediction. Take stock of the impression you have from Trump based on this. And in a few months, come back and say, hey, how accurate was that? Because I think that this is not only important to understand our relationship with our president, whether we want to support certain stuff or resist certain stuff, to have an accurate picture of who the person is and what the administration's policies are. But it's also a very good opportunity, since there's so much attention on it, for us to practice this reconsider principle in general, because it's going to help us not only in our political lives, but our other lives later. And Eric, you'll put a link to that article on the alt-right to the show notes, yeah? Darn right. Reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. Show notes will be available there. Yeah. So the next episode, we'll get back to our Reconsidering Russia series. We will be interviewing Professor Mitchell Ornstein, who's a professor of Central and East European politics. And super cool. I've got kind of a crush on him. Yeah, he has a very interesting resume, and we're looking forward to the conversation with him. Uh, he's a professor at the, at UPenn, University of Pennsylvania, and is also an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. So he knows what he's talking about, and we're going to be talking with him about Russian geopolitics. So stay oh, yeah. tuned for that. Very relevant to this whole conversation, too. Go figure. Yeah. So as always, with this event and many others... Don't let the pundits or your buddies on social media or, you know, the partisan newspaper that you read do the thinking for you. Remember always to pause and reconsider, and we'll see you next time. This is Eric signing off. And this is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time, guys. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.